If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to, uh, we're go- we're going to do something a little different today. We- we've been looking through a series called Untamed. We just started it last week. We talked about the God who is untamed, Jesus Christ untamed. I-, I don't know that we understand that because we put God in this little box. This is the way God always acts. This is the way that he always does it. And that's just not true. That's absolutely not true. And we're going to look at that for the next eight or nine weeks. We're going to look at what it means for God to be untamed. Today we're looking at the God of the unexpected. When's the last time something happened in your life that you did not expect? Yeah. Uh, I've, I've already mentioned, I'm going to have to do this. I'm sorry, I don't usually do this, but I saw a Kleenex and I need one. I didn't expect to get upset. And yet sometimes God works on your heart and does that. And I guess I'm not apologizing, I'm just explaining. But uh, I've mentioned that our son Jonathan, our youngest son, he and his wife are having a baby. Isn't that neat? Their only other child will be 16 one month after this baby is born. How do most people handle the unexpected? How do you handle the unexpected? By the way, we had an, uh, we've had a couple of babies born. Rob and, and Marjana Lloyd, they sit back in the back normally about where uh, uh, Doris is. Doris, wave at me. You, yeah, you, yeah, okay. Okay, Liz, wave, wave at me, Wiz. Oh, they, they normally sit back about there. Rob and Marjana had a little baby boy, seven pounds, three ounces, and, and I just, I'm, I'm so excited for them. And so uh, we just praise the Lord for that. We love babies around here. We think this is too cool. But how do most people handle the unexpected? They, they either laugh or they cry, don't they? I mean, there's just two extremes. Irma Bombeck said one time, humor is a spontaneous, wonderful bit of outburst that just comes. It's unbridled. It's unplanned. It's full of surprises. The funniest things are not the things you plan. The funniest things are the things that just happen. They're the unexpected things. And I think Irma Bombeck made her living finding the unexpected and exploiting that. And I loved that. But what's the other extreme? The other extreme is what we see in Mark chapter 6. You you see, it's going to be right there. Uh, Mark 6, it says, when they saw him walking on the lake, who? That's Jesus. Did you catch that? I mean, we kind of read through that phrase like that's not a big deal. They saw him, Jesus, walking on the lake, on the water. Not in the lake, not on the shore, in on top of the water. They saw him, Jesus, walking on the lake. They thought he was a ghost. They cried out. The opposite extreme of laughter is crying. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Here's where we're going with this. If you feel like you've got God all figured out, watch out. Because God is the God of the unexpected. The Bible portrays Jesus as untamed. He's the one that will do the things that you least expect at the time that you least expected. And I want to just do a survey of of seven miracles, seven things, and not necessarily all miracles, but seven unexpected things that we find about the life of Christ and what they mean to us. Here's the first one. Jesus has unexpected power over your past. Jesus has unexpected power over your past. I want to read the most interesting part of all of the Bible. It's the genealogy of Jesus. And you're going, oh man, genealogy. Look at what it says. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab. 
Amenadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Solomon, Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the mother of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the mother of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. I want to stop there for a minute. I, I slowed down every time we hit something that was unusual in this genealogy. What is it? It's four women. Most genealogies are boring. Most genealogies, if you looked at my genealogy, you'd say, what's the big deal? You know where you came from. Uh, Matthew was writing to Jews who were obsessed about their lineage, what, which one of the tribes they came from. They wanted to know, and if you were to be a good Jew, especially in Jesus' time, you needed to know your lineage, and that was tough because of what happened with the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and then later with the Babylonians when they came in. They tried to destroy those records, and good Jews knew, those, knew the records. And so the genealogies were a huge deal. Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience primarily, even though it's to all of us. And for the Jewish people, when they're looking at this, they would have been astounded because there are four women listed. How often does that happen in Old Testament or New Testament genealogies? Let's see, that would be never, ever. Women, I mean, they gave birth to, to girls just, you know, back then, just like they do today, except they didn't have epidurals and... and <laughs> You know, they're breathing and all that stuff. No Lamaze classes. The girls cost just as much pain as the boys, and yet the girls were completely unnoticed in genealogies until all of a sudden Matthew throws them in. And which four women did he, did he throw in? Tamar, her story is in Genesis 38. Tamar, what a, a lovely woman. She's the daughter of Judah, but she said, it also says that she is the mother of two of Judah's boys. Yeah, Tamar dressed up like a prostitute and enticed her father-in-law, her, her father, enticed her father to have sex with her so she could have a baby. There's a Hebrew word for that, yuck. The second woman that's listed is Rahab, Joshua chapter 2. She didn't need a disguise as a prostitute. She was a card-carrying prostitute. I mean, Rahab the harlot, that's the way we know her. That's, that was her profession. And there is some discussion about, well, since she had flax on the roof and red cords that she was making, maybe she was trying to change it. Yes, but everybody in town didn't just know her as Rahab. They know her as Rahab the harlot, Rahab the prostitute. The third woman that's listed is Ruth, and you say, well, I hope there's no sexual sin. Good news, Ruth was this godly woman from Moab. Oops, wrong side of the tracks again. The Moabites, where did they come from? We remember the story of Abraham and Lot, and they split because there wasn't enough room for all the sheep, and Lot took the plains where Sodom and Gomorrah was. God sends these angels, and, and Lot has this discussion with Abraham, and the angels tell Lot, leave Sodom, don't look back. So Lot and his wife and his two daughters leave, and, and they leave Sodom, and Lot's wife looks back, and she's, you know, when she looks back, she's turned into a pillar of salt. That would make her the first scary spice. Some of you didn't get that. I worked a long time on that one. That was... She's turned into this pillar of salt. She's out of the picture, and Lot's two daughters say, we're not going to have a husband, and so they get their father drunk, and they sleep with him, and the result of that is the Moab, the Moabites, and that's who Ruth comes from. 
And the last one is, doesn't even list her name, it's the wife of Uriah. The wife of Uriah is Bathsheba, who has an affair with David. And David has her husband killed. If you're going to list somebody in your genealogy and you're going to put a woman, do you put those four women? You do if you're God. You do if you want to send a message to all the Jews who thought you had to be pure and and perfect in order for God to love you. You do if you're God who says, I want to deal with your past. The God who is unexpected has power over your past. The big knock against Jesus was that he was a friend of sinners, that he hung out with prostitutes and with tax collectors and with the crooked and with the, the dregs of society. And here's the question. Here's the question for you. Am I willing to give my past to him? The God of the unexpected can deal with your past, but are you willing to give it to him? Here's the second lesson that we learn. Turn over to the Gospel of John, John chapter 2. If you have your iPhone, I'll give you just a second. John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. We're going to talk about that God has, Jesus has unexpected power over the trivial. Over the trivial. You know this story. It's the story of the, the wedding in Cana of Galilee. It's about 20 miles south of Capernaum, and and Cana is there. We're going to pick it up in in verse 7. They've come to this wedding. They're they're out of wine. Mary comes to Jesus, and this is what happens in verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars. These were the ceremonial jars, uh, 30 to 40 gallons of water that was at the entrance to the the place. Fill the the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim, and he told them, then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Jesus has unexpected power over the trivial. You see, religion was big business in the Roman world. Religion was a huge deal, and all of the Roman gods, all of the Greek gods had their own temple. Tonight, we're going to look at at some of the pictures from Israel and Greece. If you didn't get to go, you can come, and we won't charge you anything. We're going to show you in 45 minutes what we learned in 15 days. Uh, But we're going to have a great time, and we're going to look at some of the temples. And each of the temples of Artemis or Diana or or the different ones, Minerva, each of them had their own temple, and there was always some special something about those. We didn't go to the temple of Minerva when we were doing our trip, but the temple of Minerva uh, in in Egypt was was known for having this big, huge bronze snake that that would hiss at people. And it was just a trick. They would heat it up, and then they would have water that would splash against it. They had hidden tubes that would splash against them, and it would go, and so they were all in awe that Minerva had her own hissing bronze serpent in this temple. And there were all kinds of tricks like that. In fact, you'll notice that there's several times when Jesus is out, they will say, Rabbi, what sign do you have? Because the Jewish temple didn't entertain people. The Jewish temple didn't have hidden tubes. It didn't have some, some trick. There was another one of the temples that they would have a floating iron chariot. They had discovered in the cave where they made it that there was this huge lodestone that would attract metal, so they would bring an iron chariot, and it would lift it off the ground because it was, it was a magnet, and it would lift the iron chariot off the ground. And so they would entertain the people, and, and, and the temple of God didn't do that. And they would come to Jesus and they would say, what sign do you have? 
See, God created everything. And along with everything that he created, he created what we consider the laws of nature, gravity, the, the laws of thermodynamics. But God still stayed intact with that and, and engaged with that. And, and from time to time, he would do things that contradicted the laws that he set up. And the first miracle that he does is a wedding. And he turns water into wine. Chuck Swindoll says that this was a trick that, that some of the people used with sleight of hand. They would go and prepare this bowl, and the bowl would have water in it, and they would reach down with a cup, and of course they kept their hand over the cup. The, the wine was already in there, and they would bring one cup of wine out. But Jesus didn't do that. He doesn't touch the, the, the bowls. He doesn't touch the big jugs, the 30-gallon things. And it appears from what John says, as they took the water to the master, that it changed. They took out water, and it turned to wine by the time they got there there. This was not some magician's sleight of hand. This is God. But why do it at all? No one was suffering. I mean, it was a faux pas. It was a, it was a cultural faux pas. It made them embarrassed. But why do that? Of all the miracles you could do, why start out your miracles with this? I mean, this is pretty trivial. It's the, the people ran out of wine. So, so what? You know why Jesus did this? Because Mary asked. Mary approaches him and says, son, here's a situation. And then he tells the others just to do what Jesus says. You see, we approach God and we think that God's only interested in the big stuff. And what might seem trivial to us, God is still engaged with. And he still does those things. And my question is, am I willing to ask him for help? And please don't get me wrong. Miracles are rare in the Bible. You understand 400 years where Israel is in Egypt and they pray and it takes 400, 450 years before God sends Moses. You understand, we read something like the book of Daniel and we hear about Daniel in the lion's den and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who go into the fiery furnace and we read about those things and we think, wow, there are miracles happening all the time. That was 70 years span where there are just three or four miracles for Daniel. Miracles are rare. If miracles happened every day, they would be called regulars. It wouldn't be a miracle anymore. But God can do miracles, and he can take care of the trivial. Am I willing to ask him for help? Here's the third thing that we learn from the life of Jesus. Go back over to, to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 48. Jesus is back in Cana again. Again, it's about 20 miles south of Capernaum. Uh, about six hours walking, maybe eight if you, were, if you walk slowly. It's a long way. It's a tough, it's not just flat land. It's, a, it's over a lot of hills. And, and here we learn, number three, Jesus has unexpected power over distance. Again, he's, he's there, verse 48. Uh, this man comes to him, a royal official, it says, whose son was very sick. In verse uh, 48, Jesus is speaking, unless you people see miracles, signs, and wonders, Jesus told him you will never believe. You remember what I just said, where people were coming and say, what sign? And that's at first what it appears. Jesus wants to make sure what this guy is doing. And look at the, the verse 49. The royal official said, sir, come down, come south, before, or come down, come out of the hillside. Come down before my child dies. And Jesus replied, you may go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. What do we find out here? 
Well, first of all, who's the royal official? The royal official would have been a Sadducee. The Sadducees did not believe in, in angels. They did not believe in the resurrection. You see, they, that's why they were sad, you see. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in life after death. They believed that this life is all that you have. In today's vernacular, they would be deists. They believed there was a God, that God wound up the universe and just kind of threw it out there and said, okay, you guys do the best you can, that God never came in. So this royal official, this Sadducee, came to Jesus not as a royal official. I mean, he wasn't doing the Doris Day, que sera, sera, what will, whatever will be, will be, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. That's the way the Sadducees lived. He wasn't coming as a, as a royal official. He was coming as a father whose son was dying. He was coming as someone who was desperate. He was coming as someone who had no other options, and no matter what he said he might believe, he came to the one person he thought could help him. And he said, come with me. What does he say? Come down. Come see my child. I've heard, heard amazing things. Can you help me? My son is dying. Jesus does not rush the 20 miles. He doesn't spend a day traveling to, the, to man's son. He says to him just this, go, your son will live. The man doesn't say how, when. He doesn't say, can you give me some sign? He doesn't say, can you verify that? Can you tell me how this is going to be? What does it say? It says the man took Jesus at his word and departed. If that's me, I'm sorry. I'm going to say, wait a second. I know that you say this is going to be. Can you give me some more details? How is it going to happen? Do I need to take some herbs back? Do I need to have a poultice? Is there something I can do? The man leaves later. If you read it, it says that he goes and the people meet him and said, your son is alive. He's well. He's healed. And he asked him, what happened? What time did this happen? It was exactly the time that Jesus said it. Jesus doesn't have to travel 20 miles or 200 miles or 2,000 miles or 20,000 miles. God is not confined by distance. You say, well, what is that supposed to mean for me? Have you ever thought maybe God was too far away to help you? Have you ever thought, I wish Jesus was here, then I could have taken my son, my daughter, my problem, my work situation, my lack of finances to him? Here's a question. Am I willing to believe like this man did? Am I willing to believe? Here's the fourth thing that we learn. Jesus had unexpected power over superstition. Go to chapter 5, John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 6. We have uh, another situation. Jesus comes after the, it says, uh, after the feast of the Jews. He comes to Bethesda, and there's this uh, pool just north of Jerusalem, it has very, very deep pools. If you come tonight, I'll show you a picture of this, the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus comes there, and there's this man, and there's this superstition. And look at what it says in, in John chapter 5, verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there, this man had been a paralytic or a quadriplegic, learned that he'd been there in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Look at verse 7. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. 
What do we learn about this? He had unexpected power over superstition. What's the superstition? Have you ever noticed that the longer you believe something, that the longer that something happens, the harder it is to get over that feeling that it's always going to be that way? That if this is the way this has always been happening, that it's always going to happen that way? Have you noticed how hard it is to get over that? The Kansas City Chiefs have not gone to the Super Bowl since 1970. Some of us have suffered. And we don't believe that they will ever get there again, maybe. Maybe. The Greeks believed that there was a God of healing, Asclepius. Asclepius uh, was this God that they thought was very powerful, and so they, they would designate spots, and this pool of Bethesda was one of those. And they thought that any time the water rippled by itself, that it was either an angel or it was this God who had sent someone down and had stirred that. And if you jumped in first, you would be healed. And this man... His friends probably brought them thinking, we don't have anything else to do with him. He's lying there. We don't know how long, but it appears sometime, and he's frustrated. And, and Jesus comes and he says, do you want to get well? And the man said, how can I? I don't have anybody to help me. And so Jesus stirred the water. Is that what he did? No. He didn't feed into his superstition. He just says, get up. Walk. Satan loves to lie to us, convince us that his superstitious nonsense is truth. Satan loves to masquerade as, as truth, and he loves to lie to us and to get us to buy into that. This man, it says 40 years he had, he had been unable to move, 40 years of atrophied muscles, 40 years that you've not used your biceps or your triceps, 40 years you've not used your quads or your hamstrings, 40 years of atrophied muscles, and all of a sudden God says, get up. What would you do? Forty years those legs have not worked. Forty years your arms have not worked. What, what would you do? But the worst than 40 years of atrophied muscles was 40 years of atrophied hope. Forty years of thinking there's no way, there's no chance. The miracle? So the man obeyed. And he stood. Once the man was cured, he picked up his mat. It doesn't say he limped. It doesn't say that he hobbled. He walked. If you read later, he goes into the temple where he's not been because you couldn't come in. And he leaps in the temple. Would I have tried to get up? Here's my question. Am I willing to act when God tells me to? Here's the fifth thing. Jesus has unexpected power over insufficiency. Chapter 6, verses 5 and following. They've crossed over to the Sea of Galilee. They go to this, this wonderful place. These, the great crowd of people came. And, and there's so many people, they don't know what to do. There's, there's no food for them. Verse 5, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Look at verse 6. He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was about to do. And Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two fish, but how far will they go among so many? You know the story. Jesus has all the people sit down. They, 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 they sit down so they can count them. 5,000 men plus their families, easily 8,000, probably more like twelve to 15,000 people there that day. And Jesus takes five loaves and, and two fishes, and what does he do? He prays. 5,000 men and their families, 
Five loaves and two fishes. I don't care how big. You say the loaf was that big. It doesn't matter. 5,000 men and their family, that's not enough. There were two reactions. Philip is a statistical pessimist. He counts up all the people and he says, eight months' wages. Eight months' wages is not enough money. Jesus, you don't understand. I know what's in the treasury, and I'm a statistical pessimist. I can count it up. It isn't going to happen. It isn't going to work. I can be there sometimes. This is impossible. God can't do this. We're, we're all guilty of this. Sometimes we look at it, and we look at who we are, and we look at what's going out there, and we say, we don't have enough. And Andrew's busy, busy scrounging up food. He says, well, here's this kid, and he's got his lunch. It's not much, but, but here it is, Lord. What do you, what do you want to do with this? And, and Jesus has everyone sit down. You know what blows me away? Jesus is the only one not surprised by the need. He says to Philip, how, how are we going to feed them? Testing Philip because he already knows what he's going to do. I love this insight into Jesus' mind. Jesus has unexpected power over insufficiency. But I think it's amazing. Jesus, even though he could have created the bread out of stones or out of nothing, ex nihilo, created out of nothing, he used the boy's lunch. What if the boy had said, hey, wait, wait a second. I said I had five loaves and two fishes. I, I need one of those loaves. What, what if the boy had said, you know, my mom packed this lunch for me, and the fishes are not big, huge fish. I mean, it's probably St. Peter's fish, and they're little tiny little fish that come out of the Sea of Galilee. That's barely a growing boy's lunch. I mean, and, and the, the loaves of bread were probably just like a small biscuit-like thing. And, and he says, you know, I, I know there are a lot of people here, but can I have a bite or two first? But he doesn't say that. Here's my question for you. What am I willing to commit to him? What did the boy give? Part of his lunch? No, he gave it all. I mean, we sing, All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give, except, yeah, we kind of throw the except in there, don't we? Here's the sixth thing we learned Jesus has unexpected power over nature. Go back to Mark. Uh, we've been in John, but I, I just love some of the things that Mark says in this. Mark chapter 6, verse 49. Jesus has been there on the Sea of Galilee. <clears throat> and it says in verse 45 that he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida. Again, pictures of Bethsaida tonight. But look at what, pick it up in verse 49. Jesus has made them get in the boat. They get out in the lake for six hours. The wind has been howling. I mean, it has been so rough that they can't make any headway, and they're, and they're, they're straining at the oars. It says the fourth watch of the night, he, he went out to them. Verse 49, when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them. And the wind ceased. The Greek word there is not that it died down. It was not that it, it abated, that it slowly... It says the wind stopped. Have you ever been anywhere where it's windy and the wind just completely stopped? They were completely amazed. For they had not understood about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. Jesus has an unexpected power over nature. 
after at least six hours of rowing, could have been as many as nine hours, they're rowing. Have you ever been on a rowing machine? Have you ever stayed on a rowing machine for six hours? No, because the trainer would come say, have you lost your mind? Get off that machine. You're going to die. These guys were experienced being out on a boat. These guys knew the Sea of Galilee. Several of them were fishermen. At least four of them went out on a regular basis to fish. They knew about the lake. Jesus made them get in. They get halfway across. They can't make any further headway. And Jesus finally comes to them walking on water. Were they expecting it? Were they expecting it? Anybody here ever been to Knott's Berry Farm in Southern California? Okay. Have you ever seen the thing in the middle they call the screamer? Big, huge tower. I don't know how many feet it, it rises. But you get on this screamer, and you can sit there and watch, and they, they go up. I mean, it's, it seems like at least 100 feet. I don't know how far it is. But you can see the ocean. You can see this great, you get up on the top of this thing. And if you watch it for a while, you see that it's going to drop. And it's going to have these hydraulics. But it's going to drop at least 80% of the way before it slows down at all. It's just like whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. And the first drop, you know it's coming. I stood there in line. I watched at least 10 groups go through that. And we're standing in line. And I said, I'm not sure I want to go on this. And they all said, do you see what's happening? They're all safe. Everybody drops, but it always cushions it. You're going to be okay. And so I strapped in. I got to the top. I looked at the, the view, and I thought, this is awesome. This is amazing. And they dropped the thing. And I thought, no big deal. I screamed like a baby. Are you kidding me? I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming, and I still screamed. How about if you've been straining for six or nine hours? You think your, might, your life might be just that far from being over, and all of a sudden you see someone walking on water. He got into the boat. Everything went calm, and they're amazed. Am I willing to accept how God works? Am I willing to accept how God is going to work in my life? And here's the last one. Go back to the book of John, if you would. John chapter 11. You know the story. It's the story of Lazarus, Mary, Mar uh, Martha, and Lazarus, good friends of Jesus. He's hung out with them before. They send word that Lazarus is dying. Jesus has unexpected power over death. He has unexpected power over death. They send word, Lazarus is very critically ill. Please come. Jesus waits four days. And finally he says, let's go. And, and they said, well, Lord, you know, it's kind of dangerous where you're going here. Uh, you know, they may want to come and arrest you. And he says, well, Lazarus is sleeping. And, and one of the disciples says, Lord, if he's sleeping, he's probably getting better. The fever's broken. And Jesus says, no, he died. You don't get it. And he shows up and Lazarus is dead. Look at verse 38. Jesus once more deeply moved. He says once more deeply moved because he's already wept at the tomb earlier in John eleven thirty five. Jesus once more deeply moved came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor for he has been there four days. I used to quote this about my kids. Because the King James would say, Lord, by this time he stinketh. I had boys that every now and then smell like they were dead. They smell so bad. 
Verse 40, then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Why did he say his name? Because if he would not said his name, every dead person within the sound of Jesus would have been raised from the dead. Lazarus, come out. I love this verse. The dead man came out. Have you ever heard that about any funeral? The dead man got up. The dead man hopped across the... No, you don't hear that. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Death is the ultimate affront to God. God created us to live. We deserve death because just like Adam who sinned, we added our sin to the original sin. We added our rebellion to Adam's rebellion. And Jesus told them to remove the grave clothes. Why? Because if you've been brought back to life, you don't want to go around in grave clothes for the rest of your life, do you? And yet, don't we? How many have new life in Christ and yet look like and maybe even smell like death? How many of us have been brought to Christ and really there's no substantive change in the way we live? Here's a question. Am I willing to live for Christ? Am I willing to live for Christ? Now look back again what we talked about. Am I willing to give my past to him? Am I willing to ask him for help? Am I willing to believe? Am I willing to act? Am I w- what am I willing to commit to him? Am I willing to accept how God works? Am I willing to live for Christ? I'll close with this true story. My brother Tom is larger than I am. I'm the runt of the family. I'm only six feet tall. Tom is about six two. Tom's shoulders are about another three inches wider than mine. Tom, has, Tom is just this massive guy. When the coaches saw him when he was going into sixth and seventh grade, they could, all they could think was NFL. They thought this huge guy was going to just be this awesome athlete, and he was. He, he set the record for the, the shot put, and, and he was a really, really good athlete. But when Tom, about 10 years ago, uh, he's, I guess, four or five years older than I am, about 10 years ago, Tom had something go wrong with his hip, and they looked at it, and they said, you're too young to have a hip replacement, but there's nothing else that we can do for you. So he walked with a cane, and he walked with, a, he walked with crutches, and he did what he could for several years, and, and finally, it actually happened about 13, 14 years ago, about 10 years ago, he finally couldn't go on. He couldn't walk anymore. And the doctor said, even though you're too young for us to really do a hip replacement, we're going to do it anyway. And they gave him a hip replacement. And Tom, it, it, it took extremely well. I, I do know that they had to do a custom one because they didn't have bones that big. So they had to build him a custom hip replacement because it was so big. And they put the, 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 the whole thing together and got him out of the hospital. He went through rehab and he went back about six weeks after he'd had the hip replacement and he walked in and the doctor says, wait a second, what's wrong with you? And he says, nothing, I feel great, I don't feel any pain. And he said, walk, you know, walk across the room. He said, walk back again. And he said, you're limping. He said, no, I'm not. And he says, yes, you are. He said, here's the problem, you've limped so much for the last two or three years, even though the pain is gone and you've been healed and everything's all, and, and you're good to go now, 
you're still walking with a limp. My question is, believer, are you still walking with a limp? Let's pray. Father, you are the God of the unexpected. We didn't expect you to come personally to die in our place. We did not expect you to become the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah. We did not expect that you would offer grace. We did not expect that you would forgive and that we could not earn your forgiveness. We did not expect you to do all the things you've done. But we come to you today receiving your gift and loving you for it. So help us now, Father, as we understand who Jesus is, this untamed God, that we will believe and that we will receive and that we will come into a relationship with him. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.